I tell you, folks, we hit it out of the park today on the Terry Summers podcast with my guest and Major League Baseball's chief umpire, Ted Barrett. I'm going to call it and say we're going to have a ball. One thing I know about baseball is you had me at buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Baseball for me has been in great part about the food. I mean, you eat some great food when you go to a baseball game. I grew up in Southern California and we were loyal Dodger fans. But my loyalty rested heavily on the Dodger dog. Like what I want to know is why can't all hot dogs taste like a Dodger dog? Truthfully, I loved baseball because of how it made me feel. My dad and my brother, being huge fans, had baseball on all the time through the whole season. Listening to Vin Scully on the radio out by the pool in the summer, you know, I didn't care so much about what Vin said as how he made me feel to hear him. And... I think that came from knowing how into baseball my dad and then eventually my little brother was. They were into baseball and they loved it and it brought them joy. So having it on made me feel all those feelings and, you know, not to mention I I loved a good hot dog. But then I met Ted Barrett and struck up a friendship with Ted. I sort of felt like a baseball big shot because he's a baseball big shot. But at the end of the day, it still came down to the way Ted made me feel. He's a good guy. You'll see what I mean. And we are recording. I see the little button that, has a beeping red light and I am looking at and listening to a friend of mine and his name is Ted Barrett. He is a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you what he is for sure. A big shot. He (laughs) He is major league baseball umpire royalty. Aren't you? I wouldn't say royalty, but I am a Major League Baseball umpire. That is. <laughs> but you are, you know what? I'm kind of like, I'll tell you, I'm a little bit nervous not to talk to you, but I'm nervous in that there's so much that I want to ask you. But um, so I'm afraid I'm not going to get it all in. But right off the bat, <laughs> I amaze myself. I don't know if you caught that or not. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, right off the bat, I want to say thank you because um, this is not uh, something that everybody gets to do to talk to you. And I want you to know that I am super appreciative. What is going on with you right now with baseball? Because I know you're not, I mean, I know, tell me, you're not doing anything because nobody's playing. 
Right. And this is really, really a strange time because since 1989, I've been a professional umpire and I've been on the road uh, the entire, you know, um, the month of June, certainly. I, I would have been somewhere in the United States. And uh, right now I'm just uh, kind of in a holding pattern waiting for the season to start. And like everybody else, I kind of read the, the papers and when the players and owners get this worked out, we'll get out there. Um, but I am staying busy. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm the vice president of our umpires union, so we have a lot of union issues. Uh, we do some online training, and um, I've uh, also, you know, I've got a boxing background. So I know I want to hear. I want to hear about that. I'm I'm also a little trepidatious in like asking questions about baseball because I would consider myself the 50 yard line of baseball. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> It, it, it's not, it's not working. Um, so what, what I love about baseball though, um, are the peanuts and the hot dogs. So I just want to make sure that we get the important stuff out of the way. Do you load up on peanuts and hot dogs because you're around it all the time? Yeah. Interesting story in, in the minor leagues. Now you've been, you've been in, uh, to major league games and you've been in our locker room at the Diamondbacks and you see that you know we're pretty I have well because you let you escorted <laughs> me there okay sorry well, that's all right well for no for anybody that's never been in a major league umpire locker room it's pretty much like a 7-eleven with snacks and and food and and drinks and everything you would want in the fridge but um that's not the way it is in the minor leagues so in the minor leagues you would work a ball game and your post game meal would consist of usually a hot dog and a soda. And the hot dog would be probably dropped off in the locker room in about the seventh inning. It would be cold. The bread had gone stale. Um, <laughs> so that was your dinner. And I toiled through the minor leagues for about 10 years. And it got to the point where when I got to the big leagues and I got some real food after the game, I vowed never to eat a hot dog again because I was so sick of them. Um, Seriously? Yeah, I mean, I literally ate hot dogs every day for a six-month season for 10 years. And so, I've, yeah, I don't know what that did to my insides. Uh, but, um, I, it, it, no, I'll actually, a few years ago when I started having grandkids, um, hot dog, and, and grandpa's uh, has to feed lunch, right? So hot dogs are pretty easy to make. So uh, I will, well, I will I enjoy that hot dog. I think whatever's in the hot dog preserved you pretty well because you look great. You uh, said you're a grandpa. We'll come back to that. But how many grandkids do you have? Uh, we have five with one on the way. That's right. You told yeah. me. And that one on the way is coming up. Yeah. September. Um, so oh, seriously, that's yeah. exciting. Um, and so feeding them hot dogs, of course, that makes sense. But um, how long were you in the minor leagues? So uh, I went to umpire school in 1989, okay. and um, which, you know, umpire school, for those of you who don't know, it's really just like a big tryout. So um, when I went there, I had no idea I could become a professional umpire, and I did. I went to, uh, you start at the bottom level of the minor leagues. You know, there's AAA, AA, uh, A-ball, and when you first start, it's kind of affectionately known as Z-ball, because you're so far down the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that's not necessarily encouraging no. <laughs> <laughs> they want to make sure though that well maybe it is because they'll give you the only place you can go is up right that's right you, you started the <laughs> literally start at the bottom and um 
unlike the players, you get a player that's pretty good or he's a prospect, they'll, they'll pull him out of A ball uh, up to AAA or they'll pull him out of AA to the big leagues. We can't do that. We have to hit every level. And there's several levels of A balls. There's rookie ball, there's, there's mid A, there's long A. Long story short, um, I progressed through the system and I worked my first major league game in my sixth season of professional baseball. But then, you know, at that point, um, I had, I worked in, uh, when guys were hurt, when they were on vacation. And one thing about major league umpires, there's 76 of us now. There were 64 at the time when I was coming through. We stay until we die or retire. We are like Supreme Court justice appointees. So waiting for an opening is, uh, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time. So it wasn't until 1999 when there was openings that I was hired full time. So um, I, I actually got hired in my 11th season. Um, oh, wow. It came up in the sixth season. So, yeah, we, we um, it's really waiting for guys to get old enough to retire or die. So, you know, there's a lot of gallows humor in umpiring. And, you know, we uh, sometimes we hope a plane goes down and then someone will go, well, there's four jobs available for uh, me. And uh, Alfonso Marquez is a good good brother and uh he's a fellow umpire we ride motorcycles together and if we have a spring training game together we'll ride and we come out we always check if a minor league umpire has messed with our tires or um there's a couple triple a guys that saw say hey you guys look really cool when you ride without helmets you should do that all the time (laughs) they're just waiting for openings you can't blame them that's right can't blame them let's back up just a hair because i did want to ask about it i i knew this about you but you brought up the fact that um, you have a boxing background. You know what? It just came over me. My dad, you know, is no longer with us. He passed away when I was 23 years old. But what a huge sports fanatic my dad was. But he loved boxing and he loved baseball. So if he were still still with us here today, Ted, he would be right up in here pushing me to the side, trying to... <laughs> Uh, take over but um tell me a little bit about the boxing background because that's sort of an interesting uh, well I won't say jump but I'm but I mean I don't even know if it was a jump but tell me about that yeah so quite a story about that yeah and and well I'll work backwards to that in a minute but uh, what we started talking about is during this downtime now I've been doing a lot of uh, boxing referee training oh because I think that's kind of my next adventure, I think, is that, you know, when, it, when I retire, when I get out of baseball, I'd like to referee boxing because, you know, the baseball season is such a grind. It's a 162-day season, and we go from spring training till the World Series. And um, so when I retire, I want to slow down a little bit. But, and, and with refereeing, I have good friends that referee boxing, and they'll work, you know, three or four times a month on the weekends. So it still gives me that um, fix of my officiating itch, scratches that, but also with um, far less time commitment, at least the actual uh, working of it. So <clears throat> to back up to when I started boxing, you know, um, growing up, going to boys club, things like that, um, I, I was always interested in boxing. And then um, you and I are around the same age group, even though you look a lot younger. Oh, um, you yeah. keep it coming. Keep it coming. Because <laughs> so I have remember- a whole list of compliments I'm going to dish out if you keep it coming. <laughs> um well if you remember when we were when we were younger um the rocky movie came out the first yeah. one yeah and uh you know and i fell in love with boxing and um and uh, all the rocky movies are great by the way for you haters out there that don't like them they, they're all awesome 
<laughs> but uh, that's when I started boxing. And as a kid, kind of dabbled in it, played all different sports. Fast forward, um, I get into college, uh, had some amateur fights. I wanted to turn pro. I moved to Las Vegas uh, before I went to umpire school. After getting punched around a little bit, I, that's one of the reasons I went to umpire school. My dad didn't really like me boxing. Um, he was always a big supporter of mine in every sport I played, but he wasn't crazy about boxing. Okay. So he said, he said, Hey, um, the, the umpire school in Florida, I'll pay for you to go there. And I went, oh, five weeks in Florida. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, when I left the gym in, in Las Vegas, I said, Hey guys, I'll be back in about five weeks. I'm going to go uh, to umpire school and sit on the beach and have fun. And then I got the job in baseball. <clears throat> so, um, but I didn't completely leave boxing. Uh, and in the minor leagues, we get paid very, very little. Uh, we don't get much money. So we all, and we only get paid during the five months of the season. And so I always needed a job. Um, and so I started sparring with uh, some heavyweights. And then I moved to Arizona eventually um, after my third season in the minor leagues. And Tina and I, and our, our oldest boy, uh, was born in California. And we moved here to Arizona. And um, was just boxing to kind of stay in shape. Well, heavyweight sparring partners are hard to find. And so all the heavyweights, they, and they would, they would pay. So even as I was coming up through the minor leagues, it was a source of income to spar with guys. And um, I got, throughout my travels, I got to work, spar with a lot of great guys, great people. The best people you'll meet are in boxing. Um, and uh, still have great... Well, you know, name drop, um, seven world champions. Um, yeah, George Foreman, Vander Holyfield. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've quite the, quite the list. Uh, and what, what would happen uh, back in the 90s when these guys were fighting in Vegas, they would come to, to Phoenix to train, get acclimated to the, um, you know, the weather yeah. and not have the distractions mm -hmm. uh, that Las Vegas holds. Mm -hmm. And so um, – you know, it was a, just a training ground and uh, usually was able to get quite a bit of work with those guys in the different gyms around Arizona. So um, that was but my you, background. You, when class I got to you, sorry, you classified as a heavyweight because you're, you're a big guy. You're six, what, five, four? Yeah, say I'm six, four. I'm shrinking a little bit, but uh, probably about six, three and a half now. Okay. All right. But, but uh just you're quite a presence um so when you said heavyweight i was like why is that wait a minute no you are you're a big guy um yeah and that's and that's rare to find in uh for boxers to get big guys that could get in the ring and, and take the punches of a professional right. uh, boxer and be able to press them to get ready so uh yeah i was i was in demand as a as a punching bag i said you call me <laughs> everlast but well that uh, is like that is dang cool. That is such a cool, cool thing. Yeah, um, and I would say, um, you know, when I got to the big leagues, a lot of the players uh, knew that. And I was actually, when I first got there, I was still doing some sparring. So a lot of times if someone watches a game and sees me talking to a player, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I like talking anyway to guys, um, passing the time because baseball can be boring. Uh, but a lot of times they're talking to me about boxing. A lot of the players will ask me, hey, did you see this fight? Do you see what do you think of this guy and this fighter? And um, so, yeah, a lot of the conversations on the baseball field are about boxing, which is kind of surreal, but um, kind of known around the league as the, as the boxing guy. Um, I wanted, 
you said something and then we kind of got off a little bit about being informed about what's going on with baseball right now. You said you read the newspapers and such. Are you included? Are you guys as umpires? Um, do you have direct line of communication about what's going on? Do you have any idea about when baseball may return and what that might look like? Uh, yeah, just through the, through the union activities. I'm an officer in the union. I, I get, uh, I get talks about that and, and, and where we're at now, you know, it's just what everybody else is reading is that, uh, the players and owners came to an impasse, but the, uh, commissioner of baseball has the right to, based on their March agreement to impose a season. And so, uh, very soon now he'll be coming out with when we'll start, um, how long it will go. Of course, uh, we want to keep everybody safe. So this spike in the uh, coronavirus, especially here in Arizona, is, is not um, a good sign for like a spring training 2.0. So trying to figure out if they want to do it in their home parks or in different places. Uh, Florida is also spiking. So, you know, we want to get out there any day, but we also want to stay safe and we don't want to put anybody in harm's way. So we're all kinds of talks about um, keeping players and umpires and personnel safe not having fans in the stands to start. Um, so, yeah, that's that's just an ongoing battle. Uh, but I think you're going to see some baseball here pretty soon. Wow. Yeah. My brother's going to be thrilled. That was one of the things he wanted me to see if I could get out of here, if you had any <laughs> inside scoop. Um, I, uh, as I have made myself super clear, um, I don't know – a lot about well i grew i grew up going to dodgers games and really right. i um i loved what i would uh, ignorantly back then call intermission because i'm a theater person but where <laughs> but um you know where you got to stand up and sing and all that um, and uh so i just have you know kind of a limited understanding but you do you have what's your you have a lot of pressure on you yeah. In in this in this job. I mean, you make some your calls are make they can make and break a situation. Do you have any um thoughts that you want to share about something that you went into? I mean, you have to make them pretty quickly, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. like me, I would say, can you just give me a few minutes? I just I want to call a friend. I just can't make decisions <laughs> like that. But um, what, what, do you have anything that stands out that was like a, oh, and you just did it? Well, yeah, they, there's a saying in umpiring that you have to start out perfect and get better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and technology has certainly, over the past few years, brought about new challenges in that, uh, and that the, the pressure is tremendous to be perfect. And uh, there's no doubt about that. But you know, really what, what, what happens to us uh, during games is when plays happen, we actually try to have good timing and take our time to make the decision, make things play out, replay it in our mind. So there's this, this is one of the beauties of the sport. Here's this, uh, we call it a bang, bang play at first where it's really close and everybody's on their edge. It's going to be safe. It's going to be out. And there's the umpire like taking his time. And um, everybody's like, and, and you being a theater person, it makes for great drama, right? Oh, I bet. So there's this anticipation hanging in the air. And for us, uh, you know, we're able to be so focused and slow things down that 
to us, it feels like an eternity. I but bet. to a fan, it's only a few seconds. So we're watching, we're waiting, we're taking in all the factors, all the cues, what we saw, what we heard, what our brain's telling us, replaying it, and then we come out and emphatically uh, sell the call. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what we do on a nightly basis, uh, working the plate. You know, there's the 300 pitches will come in uh, on an average, and we're making decisions on, on a lot of them. And so, you know, the pitcher's thrown, the, the catcher catches it, and there we are, again, taking our time, replaying. So uh, a lot of uh, good umpiring is what we call timing. Mm. And um, trying not to feel the pressure of making an immediate call because the worst thing is when you go, strike, dang it, I meant ball. You know, but you've already called strike. So, you know, that's why you're, re you're, you're really taking your time and trying to get it right uh, because the best thing – in umpiring the way we learn is by making mistakes so uh you know we, we're coming up through the minor leagues and we go safe and then we say oh i should have said out well it's too late now you gotta stick with the safe so you know the, the good umpires will wait and in their mind they're going safe no wait Re rethink that he's out boom then come up make the call and um yeah so this these are this is the things that happen every night um now we have replay in the major leagues which has come in and I tell you, there's, there's, there's a, it, it's a sick feeling to make a call. And then the manager says they want to challenge you. We go over, we get on the headphones, we're talking to our peers in New York. We rotate in and take turns being the replay official. And then, uh, you know, the, the replay official comes out and says, um, you call them safe, but we're going to overturn it to out. And so in front of 50,000 people, you correct your mistake, you go back to your position, and your, your heart just sinks because your job and your instincts is to be perfect and get things right. Nobody likes to be proven wrong. Anybody that's married knows the feeling of <laughs> having to apologize to your spouse and say you were right. I mean, and that's what it feels like. Now you're standing out there in the bases just going, oh, and you, you just feel terrible. But, um, you know, you get over it because now you're going to have another play coming up. Um, so, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, Especially you, when you get in the World Series and the dial gets turned up. and That's yeah, what so. I was just going to ask you. Go ahead, yeah. Talk, talk, about, talk about your World Series games. And then there was the big one that even I remember. I don't know. It was a couple years ago maybe. Yeah, yeah. You were where that went right. on forever. Yes, that was, that, was a long, that was a long game. So my first World Series was in 2007. And it was the Rockies and Red Sox. And um, so we – we had the first two games in Boston. And, of course, I'm so excited. It's my first World Series. We go to Colorado, and I worked on home plate in game three, which was the first World Series game in, in uh, Rockies history. So um, it was exciting. It was brisk. Uh, you know, October weather in Colorado can be, you know, it could be 90 or it could be 12. So um, <laughs> we we playing late at night. It's about 38 degrees. And, um it was four hours and 19 minutes. It was the longest nine-inning game in World Series history, and it still stands. Um, and then uh, the next World Series I worked in 2011 was um, St. Louis and Kansas uh, – I'm sorry, St. Louis and um, Texas. And we went seven games, and it was a, a back and forth. It was really exciting. Um, and then, you know, that's when I met you shortly after that uh, when we filmed the, the piece out in, um, at the church, which was a lot of fun. Uh, worked 2014, and that was another seven-inning thriller with the the Giants and the Royals. 
Um, and then uh, the 2018 one was the first one where I was uh, the crew chief for that series. So that was that's kind of the pinnacle of an umpire career. When when you go to umpire school, you dream someday you would get an assignment as a crew chief of a World Series. And that so that was uh, that was um, 2018 with the Dodgers and Red Sox. So I worked game three um, in that series in L.A. And, uh, you know, it's nice working on the West Coast with these postseason games because it's an earlier start. They right. accommodate for TV 8 o'clock on the East Coast, which can go into the midnight hour. So I feel fortunate because I draw the 5 o'clock game. Um, you know, we'll get out of there at a decent hour and, and uh, be able to spend some time with our families and enjoy it. That's not the way it went down. Um, so it was seven and a half hours. And I found out a couple things. Number one, I didn't think I could go that long without eating. Uh, I think I don't think I've ever gone seven and a half hours without eating something. Uh, and I didn't think I'd go seven and a half hours without going to the bathroom. So it was. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was oh my a, gosh. A long night of work. We went past midnight. Um, and you know, you growing up going to Dodger games, uh, you'll you'll understand this. When when the game starts, I look up and and the stands are. are you know, probably about half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> and then you go about the fourth or fifth inning, you look up and the stands are packed. Yeah. 100%. Then you look up in about the seventh inning and people are all leaving because they want to beat the traffic. And I always, you know, I work games in LA and I'm always like, man, those people missed us. an exciting ninth inning, but they, they can't afford to stay because they'll be there till they'll be late for work the yeah, next right. day. Um, so I remember looking up in about the 14th inning as it's getting close to midnight and nobody had left. Nobody in the, usually the bleachers are empty in the late innings. Nobody had left. And so, you know, it's one of those things that dawned on me, it's like, wow, yeah, I guess this is the world series. No one's going to pay this much money for a ticket and leave. Uh, but people stuck around and, um, you know, my mom and dad was their first time going to a world series game. And, um, you know, so the game was over, and, and I didn't know if they'd stick it out or go back to the hotel as they're getting older and they get tired. But I said, you guys picked a heck of a, a game to come to, um, seven and a half hours. And, and uh, so the, the crew told them, uh, if you're going to be coming to games and make them go long, you're not welcome back. Uh, but, yeah, that was quite an experience. And, and you know, it's funny as I, I worked at a lot of games, a lot of big games, had a lot of fun things happen. Um, but I'm still in the middle of it. So I don't think until I retire will I really kind of start to grasp it. Uh, okay. Someone said the other day that uh, or it was two days ago, my mom had texted my wife, Tina, and she said that it was the anniversary of the perfect game that I worked in San Francisco in 2012. And I just started thinking, wow, that was eight years ago. Tell me what that means, perfect game. Does that, what does that mean? I don't so, know. Yeah, so uh, the starting pitcher, which is very rare, they throw a complete game anymore with, because of pitch limits and things like that. So if you uh, – 27 batters, 27 up, 27 down, nobody got a base hit, nobody reached base on a walk, nobody reached base on an error. So a no-hitter would be nobody got a base hit. Okay. But you could have a walk or someone get an error or something. But a perfect game is nobody reached base. And it's one of the rarest feats of baseball. There's been – you know, the 150 years or however long we've been playing and they've been keeping records, there's only been, I think, 25 perfect games. And I'm the only umpire to be behind the plate for two of those. Oh, and and I'm, I'm the only umpire to be um, 
I worked third base uh, in for Philip Humber's perfect game. So I've been involved in three of them, and I'm the only umpire to be, to do that. So it's kind of cool to think of all the years of baseball and then all the history of it um, that I've been I've like caught lightning in a bottle three times. So now you talk about pressure, um, you know, with especially working the plate with each pitch that comes in, you have to be exactly right and um, you know because if you miss a pitch if you call a, a ball a strike everybody's just going to point to it and say oh look this guy didn't earn it the umpire helped him or if you call a strike a ball you're going to say well, he cost him a perfect game and uh, in 2010 Armando Galarraga was pitching for the Detroit Tigers he needed one more out for a perfect game um, which, you know, to put him in the record books, the fame, the money that this would achieve for this pitcher, it's astronomical. You can't even put a price on it. And so Jim Joyce, a good friend of mine, was the first base umpire. Uh, there was a ground ball. It threw over to first base. Uh, the runner was going to be out. Perfect game. Bedlam would have ensued. And Jim called him safe. And we had no replay at the time. And they replayed it, and he was clearly out. And, um, you know, so you talk about just – he goes in the locker room. The teams are upset, obviously. He looks at the replay for himself. Because as umpires, we don't know when we make the call originally. You know, we have to just – we assume we're right because that's just the nature of the job. We have to be confident in ourselves. But then when you look at the replay and you honestly take a look at it and see you're wrong, your heart just sinks. And now imagine this, the enormity of this call. Um, he has just cost this pitcher a perfect game. And I called him that night, you know, and he was just sick. Uh, but it was a cool story in baseball about grace and forgiveness because, um, you know, the, the manager came by the locker room. And of course, the reporters are there. And, and the manager said, uh, hey, we're going we're gonna to sit down here and have a beer and just, and, and just kind of forget about it. And then the next day, Armando Galarraga, the pitcher, brought up the lineup cards to home plate. Now Jim in the rotation is working home plate. And he comes out, gives him the lineup cards, shakes his hand. Uh, the crowd cheers. You know, this guy went from being a villain that um, literally getting death threats. His children were getting death threats. Get out. Yeah, to now um, Jim standing there in tears. The, the Armando hugs him. They go on. They play the game. Um, it was it was just a cool and in Jim. So what what prompted that is Jim owning it, telling the reporters, hey, I missed it. I feel terrible. Nothing, you know, um, not no arrogance, no uh, defiance, no uh, just heartfelt remorse. And um, it bought healing to uh, it, was, it was just a cool situation that happened. And that's, uh, you know, now I'm getting on my high horse here, but this is why I feel like we need to get back on the field because if I can go back to 2001 with 9-11, when the planes flew into the towers, um, I was actually home on an off day. We were scheduled to go back the next day. On, um, I think I was headed to San Diego. And baseball comes out and they, they shut the season down for the time being. And a week later, we went back. Uh, and so I got on a plane and flew to Chicago. I did not want to get on a plane. I didn't want my, did not want to leave my family, my young children. Um, so I was angry, uh, you know, didn't want to be there. Go out on the field that night. You know, we, we play the game. Um, we have an ejection over something stupid, and I'm thinking, 
this is dumb. Why are we out here playing a game when the country is so hurting? Um, but I was wrong because as the season progressed into the, into the postseason, into the World Series, um, it was – and that, that was the year that the uh, Diamondbacks beat the Yankees. And it was just a great World Series. Went seven games. Um, it healed the country or it gave them a distraction. It brought them together, something to concentrate on. And I feel like as soon as we get back on the field, there's going to be a healing process that starts with everything that's going on. And so sometimes I feel like, you know, God put me on this earth for something. And, and, and at times I think this is futile. This is why am I standing out here being a babysitter for a bunch of millionaires on a field? You know, sometimes I feel like that. And I'm like, God, surely you put me on this earth to do something else. Uh, but when things like that happen, you start to realize that um, your life's not wasted because, you know, uh, I feel like I'm bringing order to chaos, you know. And, and so I feel like that is what God put us on earth to do. It's what he does. And then he's kind of uh, that's what we do. And, and I, I feel like, you know, my heart goes out to police officers. I don't want to get the political, but, you know, they bring order to chaos every day. And uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, um, there's some, some bad ones that, uh, you know, bring bad names to some good ones. And that's all I'll comment on that. But um, I feel like uh, it's important for us to get back out there and play. I believe it. I really do. I think that um, even in ways that might not be recognized, just I, uh, I know that I shared in the um, – a second podcast it was kind of like a, a placeholder till my first episode aired and I shared about how the brain needs some time to like uh, check out and not check out in a zombie way but I mean in a way that you can move away from things and and baseball um, you know what I mean from the smells and the environment and the and the camaraderie of who you're going with to watch and just the talent that's on the field and the tension, all of that is an opportunity for us just to go somewhere else. Plus what you've just shared, you know, I mean, some of the life lessons, the story about grace when a mistake was made and owning that. I mean, it, it doesn't get any more real than that. I know I read about, um, I read something about you where you commented on, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've encountered a lot of, of uh, at each other from managers or from, you know, whatever that happens when a call is made. But, um, and you, we can get back to that in just a second, but you did um, mention that you try to bring peace into a situation. So if you could like give us maybe one of your memorable where someone was really at you and how you infused peace in the situation, whether or not they relate specifically in that time frame or not, that would be cool to hear because I'm sure, right. You've had some people come at you uh, oh, yeah. when you make a call and they're not happy with it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the players, they, there's so much pressure on them too to perform that uh, they don't always act uh, probably ways they're proud of on the field. And umpires and players are like cats and dogs. They're just going to fight. It's just, it's just the way it is. Hopefully you have a professional relationship, but a lot of times things spin out of control. And um, a lot of times there's anger that comes out from them. There's just uh, – and a lot of times it's I've, – I've 
tried to understand where they come from. And a lot of times it's not so much about you as things happening with them in their lives where they just, you know, whether they've been in a slump, whether they, you know, the media is all over them. And now, you know, you make a call, they disagree with it, they snap. Um, so yeah, I try to, uh, again, making mistakes, uh, coming up through the minor leagues, you kind of learn what works and what doesn't. And me being a fighter, when they snapped at me, I went right back at them. When they came out at me, I went right back at them. And when they, you know, got my face and cussed, I went right back at them. You know, thinking, hey, I'm a man. I'm not going to let anybody do that to me. All that stuff didn't work. It just made matters worse. Um, as I became closer to God and I started, you know, um, reading the Bible and, you know, one person I really look up to is Jesus as I read through the Gospels. And I just started thinking, how would he handle this? I mean, because he wouldn't have, he was a stand-up guy. He wasn't there. He wasn't a pincushion. He didn't let people run over him. But so I'm, I'm like, I think he would have listened more. So you listen. And then, uh, you know, a soft word sometimes, Proverbs says a soft word turns away wrath. So someone comes out yelling and screaming at you. Sometimes I talk softly in my answer. And it brings them down. Uh, I'll try to call them by name. You know, it's like, uh, hey, Joe, okay, I hear you. You need to settle down. And you, you'll see them, you know, start to come down. Um, and then their voice lowers. And now you're having a conversation. That's the goal. Go from a screaming match to a conversation. And um, so maybe you try to inject some humor uh, into it. And so those are the things that, you know, they, they work, they learn. I've got gray hair, which helps uh, – they listen a little more than they yell. When you first come <laughs> up as a, as a young guy, they challenge you on everything. You know, they'll yell it's a night game when it's a day game just to – but um, these are the things I teach young guys is to try that. Everything works differently. Um, but I'll also say this, just like Jim Joyce did, owning up to that mistake, um, sometimes we need to do that too. Not that you run around telling everybody, oh, gee, I'm sorry, I missed it. But there's times when you're wrong. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. And I really, God's really helped me with my language on the field because especially as cameras get closer, I don't want people rip, lip reading. I didn't want my kids. I certainly don't want my grandkids see me uh, cussing on the field. Um, and so God's really helped me stop that. Um, and that stands out because baseball is kind of like uh, for the military. It's, you know, the, the words are just flying around. Uh, it's just the way it is. So, number one, to, to not do that separates you. People start looking at you. Why are you not doing that? But also, I remember a situation where I got into it with a coach, yelling, screaming, swearing. I called him some things. Um, and when it was done, you know, my, my crew chief and my crew was like, way to go. Way to, way to give it to that guy that, you know way to, uh, you know, way to stick up for yourself, way to do this and way to do that. So my peers thought it was great. But as I laid in bed that night, I was just like, man, that's, you know, I think it's God convicting me. That's not the way I want you to act. That's not the way I want you to treat people. So I went and I apologized to the guy the next day. And um, he, he, uh, he couldn't believe it. He's like, what, am I, am I being punked here? Is this a joke? And I'm like, no, no, I'm really, I'm sorry. I called you this. You, you, you don't deserve that. I didn't really mean that. And um, he was just, uh, I could see him softening from that point on. Like, um, and, you know, I felt like that's what I needed to do. Um, that's one part of it. The other part of it is being able to extend forgiveness. 
because we learned in umpiring is when a player comes and apologizes to you, uh, you tell them to take that apology and stick it. That's kind of what we're taught to do. And, um, and I would do that. Um, but one day I just, again, I think God was convicting me and I, and he said, Hey, I've forgiven you of a lot. You need to forgive too. So a player came to me, he actually sent another player to say, Hey, so-and-so in the dugout, see him over there. He said to apologize. So the normal response is that if he wants to apologize me, tell him to come out and do it himself. You know, that's kind of the, the banner that goes on. But instead I said, you go back and tell him that I accept his apology. Thank you. And you tell him I've been forgiven of a lot of stuff. I forgive him. We can start over. Um, and again, that makes such an impression. I'm the players retired now and I'm still friends with him to this day, but to be able to give forgiveness, um, is, is amazing. To be able to apologize and receive grace and forgiveness is amazing, but I've learned to be able to forgive and extend that grace. Um, that's been a life changer for me. And, um, you know, as I watch everything that's going on in the world today, it's like all people do is they throw hate at each other and there's no common ground. There's no understanding. There's no agree to disagree. And there's no forgiveness. It's like, you cross me, I'm dead to you. And, and I just think that's what we're missing. Um, anyway, man, you always get me preaching on these questions. And <laughs> no, you can ask a question. Just tell me to shut up. Give me no, 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 no. <laughs> I was sitting here thinking, uh, and I don't want to get choked up. You know I'm an emotional person, but um, oh, heck, if I get choked up, whatever. But yeah, that's all right. I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking I did not necessarily bargain to, for this, that I would be hearing, uh, and I'm one that can pick out things that aren't necessarily obvious, but I wouldn't have thought that that, that umpiring would have such um, such gifts to us as uh, hello non sport people or I mean just to humanity on how to um, live life well I don't know if you've ever thought about writing a book but I mean the parallels there from the very beginning I mean even making difficult decisions and dealing with mistakes my friend you know i look back and and you know what age we are don't say it um <laughs> but, um i look back and i i i have some regret that i uh let some things pass because i didn't like just jump in and make some choices not willy-nilly but so when I'm listening to you share as an umpire from making decisions to, to um, feeling confident and, but then the, the stories of grace and forgiveness, it's like a template that I'm listening to um, you share for living. And I, yeah. um, it like, it, it seems super obvious to me. And the pressures of life, there's a parallel there because you, as, a, as you've shared the pressures that are on you that are specific to the game and specific to the role that you've stepped into. Um, but even the, even the term of bringing chaos, I mean, bringing calm to chaos, 
I don't know. I mean, I would, I would love to encourage you if you, maybe you've written something and I'm ignorant to it. I don't know. Have you written anything? No, I did. Uh, I did. I did my dissertation um, on umpiring. Uh, and it was, it was just a part of that was the conflict, right? Because it's daily conflict. I mean, we walk on the field and it's instant conflict. You haven't even done anything. Yet. They haven't even played the national anthem yet. And sometimes there's people in the dugout pissed off at you whether it was something that happened last month or there's guys that hold grudges like crazy. I mean, I've got people still mad at me from what happened uh, between us in the minor leagues and now they're coaching and managing teams. It's like, uh, so all that um, you're right. There's some great parallels in life, especially like I started to preach on a minute ago, we're not handling conflict well in this country. We're just not, and we're not handling uh, different points of view. If you don't agree with me, then I will shut you down and not talk to you. And, and, and how did we get there? Um, because every night we have to figure out a way to get through conflict. And sometimes you get through it one inning and then it comes up the next. And then, so you're right. I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned. And um, I've read your book, so maybe you, you, maybe you can help me write it. And uh, we'll... <laughs> You threw that little we'll get it out there plug in there for me. Purpose. I bet most of my listeners don't even know that I wrote a book. So um, thank you for mentioning well, that. Well, you need, you need to make it available because it really blessed me uh, when I read it. Or oh, write another one. We'll update it. Right? That's been a Sounds few years. good. And I, will, I would definitely be your cheerleader for, um, for you writing a book. You know, you have a lot to you. And I could go on. I haven't even gotten to a fraction of the... Um, the questions that, that my brother kind of put in my brain, um, my brother being Mark Summers, I wanted to give him a plug, but, um, I'm Mark. <laughs> now that, now that he, um, that I've spoken of him, we'll have to make sure y'all get to meet because he would be, he would just love your stories. My brother is, um, a sports fanatic, um, but, uh, but best particularly baseball, but that that being said there's a lot to you um and i just want to touch on those i hope you'll come back um yeah, yeah we'll do it again awesome but what about um I, you mentioned you ride mm -hmm. as in uh motorcycles yes and is that a passion is that something you do often yeah that's something that um uh you know growing up just as a kid i always loved motorcycles harley davidson's um and uh, my oldest brother was a really good mechanic. So uh, uh, I bought a, for you bikers out there, my first bike was a, a 1973 Ironhead Sportster, which, um, you know, if you, it was an old AMF. So when you, you better learn to, to work on them if you're going to ride one. Uh, so I pushed that bike a lot and uh, learned from my brother and others how to, uh, you know, maintain it. And, and I'm not a mechanic by any stretch of the imagination, but I love to work on bikes. My problem is uh, I love to tear them apart, but I don't know how to put it back together. But, uh, <laughs> I love. Uh, you know, my husband, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, he is um, a certified Harley mechanic. So he has, that, he has that thing about tearing things apart and putting them back together again um, and, yeah. and has always been a Harley person. Um, do you ride still frequently today? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, while with all this time off that you've had, have you had a chance to ride? I have, and it's it's great, especially before you know before it got to be 170 here in Phoenix. Um, I do, as I get older, I don't ride in the heat as much, 
but uh, you know, late night rides are cool. It's my therapy. Yeah. Uh, get out there in the wind and ride. And it's also for me, it's, I think it's important to brotherhood, uh, tribe. Um, so you're riding with guys. Um, there's just, there's something about that. Uh, my closest friends are guys I ride with and, um, you know, we just, we just get out there as a group and, and ride in a pack and it's great. And, and it's, and my wife loves to, she gets on the back. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I've got, I've got the bike that I ride with her on the back. I've got the bike that I, I ride with, with my buddies. Um, I've got a bike with a sidecar so I could take my kids around. It's, uh, when my kids were little, I had a, a bike with a sidecar. When they got older, I sold it. And then I started having grandkids. And uh, so I wish I still had that sidecar bike. Um, so, of course, I had to go out and get one so Grandpa can. And, and one of the coolest things is going and picking up my grandson. He just graduated kindergarten, by the way. Um, yeah, and so going to pick him up uh, before school shut down um, at school. Uh, him jumping in the sidecar and, and all the kids loved it. And um, oh my goodness, I bet he had he, he had to be big stuff that day when Grandpa came and picked him oh, up. Yeah, and it's cool because and then uh, doing that with my my children and now doing it with my grandchildren, it's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I've always ridden, loved to ride, um, and uh, got Harley's. Uh, Probably got too many in the garage right now, but um, <laughs> they're all older ones, so they take work, and that's why I got to, uh, you know, I look forward to um, hanging out with your husband and picking <laughs> his brain. He's probably not going to want to talk about it, but I'm going to, uh, uh, I love learning things from people that uh, know a lot more than me, and so uh, I look forward to that. That'll be super cool. And I'm noticing, I know the audience that's listening can't see your shirt, but I see a logo, um, yeah. CFC, and uh, looks like uh, the baseball diamond and at home plate is a cross. So tell us about that. Yeah, so when I first got to the big leagues, um, there was great groups like UPI, which is a wonderful group that um, ministers to professional baseball players. It's former players ministering to um, current professional players. And then Baseball Chapel also, um, players can't get to, to ball games on Sundays because they're usually one o'clock games. It doesn't just work well for church service. They've got to be there so early. So they bring church to them at the ballpark. These are great organizations, but they are geared toward the players. So there was nothing really toward the umpires, although they partner with us and, um, but really their primary mission is to, is to serve the players. And so um, we decided as a couple of umpires that wouldn't it be great if we had an organization that was run by umpires for umpires. And so CFC came to be, it's calling for Christ. Um, calling for Christ. Calling umpires for make calls. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Someone smarter than me made that up. I thought it was catchy. Uh, so <laughs> Been shortened to CFC. Our motto is Jesus loves umpires, and uh, and the the real motto is Jesus loves umpires because no one else does, <laughs> except except our moms and wives sometimes. So, <laughs> uh, but we shortened it to just the Jesus loves umpires, and because it fits on the wristband better. Um, <laughs> and uh, so during the season, um, we have a uh, we have. A prayer call, weekly prayer call for the major league guys, a weekly prayer call for the minor league guys. We do a, um, a retreat every year. That's our big thing. We meet out in the middle of Texas and we 
um, come together just for a weekend of, of fellowship and bring in great speakers and eat a lot of great food. And, and we, we, we just, we talk about Jesus. And then we have a discipleship program we go through. Um, and the guys uh, take each other through Bible study. Um, and so one, it, one thing about baseball being shut down, this has been a really a great time for CFC because we gather, gather together for church on Saturday. Uh, we do a Bible study on Tuesday. Uh, we're kicking the prayer call back up. Um, and just the one-on-one -on -one time that I, if I was on the road right now with games and, and the hustle of the schedule, I wouldn't have the time. I've been able to sit down with guys, go through Bible studies on a regular basis. And um, so that's just been a real rich time of ministry and, and, and guys growing closer together. And the big thing, just like I talked about, you know, brotherhood and tribe and getting out and riding our motorcycles, doing CFC is just a tribe of guys coming together and staying in community. Because the biggest thing, we go on the road and, uh, you know, it's not like the players where you could see them, and, you know, someone sees Mike Trout out in the public, they're going to be mobbing him and everything. But with us, we can go, I can go pretty and be anonymous city to city. And I can also, uh, as I get in my hotel room, um, I've got downtime, then I go do the game, then I come back, I have more downtime. And guys can go into a cave, as we call it, um, just as, as going into the Old Testament story of David fleeing uh, from, uh, from Saul, and uh, he's hiding in caves. And we have guys just going to caves all the time. But if you're in community, you're going to be pulling that guy out of the cave. So that's what CFC is all about. It's, it's community, it's brotherhood, it's fellowship. And for those um, that are listening that don't have a faith background or are active in that, when you say you minister um, to umpires, what does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, it's whatever you do, nobody really knows what it's like unless they've done it. Uh, you know, so if you're a fireman, um, it's hard for you to tell someone that's not a fireman what it's like. I have no idea the, you know, the pressure they're under. If you're, if you're over in, uh, you know, if you, if you've served in Vietnam, um, I can talk to you, but I really have no idea what that must've been like. But those who have, have this bond because they know exactly what it was like to serve in Vietnam. So only one, a Vietnam vet can really minister to another Vietnam vet. When I say that, is come alongside him, mm. uh, commiserate with him, have empathy for him. So I talked to you about uh, Jimmy Joyce missing that call. And to a fan, um, they don't understand what he was feeling. I understand. I've been there. I've done that. Um, and so to minister to, those, to these guys, to the, to the minor league guys, I know that it's a grind. They're coming up. They're making no money. There's very little chance of them making the big leagues. I get that. I can help them with their lives. Um, to my guy that I stand on the field next to, I live the ups and downs with him. Mm. And I can walk through him with that. I can encourage him. Um, I can help him with my experiences. Um, and I just want to encourage people, you know, whether you have a faith background or not, Whatever you do for a living, um, God has strategically placed you there um, to minister to people that you're with because only you know what someone's going through if you've done it. And, um, you know, whatever you do, you know, my mom was a nurse. Um, 
she she's retired now, but she understands what nurses go through. Uh, my dad was a, a welder, pipe fitter. Um, he knows what pipe fitters go through. So my point is, no matter what you do, uh, if you are a person of faith, a lot of people think, uh, you know, oh, the pastor does this, or the reverend does this, or my priest does this. Um, they're out there working, but you are in the front lines. And uh, you need to um, minister to people. That's why God put you there. And if you're not a faith background person, um, you certainly can uh, be an encourager. You can certainly help people with their lives. Um, you can certainly support them, encourage them. And uh, so that's my sermon for today. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of sermons for today, um, you are an ordained minister. Yeah. Um, as we started CFC, I realized that I needed to start getting some theological education. My um, undergrad was in kinesiology, which um, I don't use any of. But uh, so I, I went to a seminary, Trinity Theological Seminary in Newburgh, Indiana. And um, that's where I received my master's and then my Ph.D. But I just enjoyed doing the, uh, the studying so much. I kept going. Um, but, you know, you don't have to have a formal theological education uh, to be a minister um, to someone else. But I do enjoy um, taking baseball like we talked about and, and uh, making parallels to that, to Jesus and his teachings. So, uh, yeah, when I get the chance to speak to people, I love to talk about uh, baseball and love to talk about Jesus and um, hopefully make them um, – start to uh, at least understand umpires a little bit better instead of wanting to kill them. I mean, what are the profession? There was a movie starring William Bendix a long time ago before we were born, but it's called Kill the Umpire. And, you know, that's... <laughs> oh, my it, gosh! That's just what people yell. I mean, kill the umpire. I mean, how, I know a lot of people work jobs that are a lot more dangerous than mine, but, you know, not everybody yells, you know, kill, kill the fill in your profession and have it be completely acceptable. <laughs> but, uh, totally. That's what's happening. And I, um, I had an opportunity to interview someone and I was moved to ask this question at the end. And we can start to wrap up knowing especially that you're going to come back. Yes. Um, but I asked her, there's so much in life that changes and there's so much change that we have experienced even this year. That is, and I'm sure you will agree, it's um, changed things that we thought may never change. That the, uh, I, I, I read a little piece on baseball that said that nothing really stops baseball um, except baseball. And that was written before COVID. So COVID definitely stopped baseball. But, uh, and I think they were referring to strikes, et cetera. But yeah. um, so much change has happened this year. Ted, I know you agree with me there. Um, and it just happens in life. I'm not a big fan of change, but I, I roll with it. But I, I want to know, is there something that you hope never changes? Mm. Wow. Um, I'm not a fan of change either. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when you roll with it, it usually works out okay, I find. Right. Um, yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We talk about, we talk about politics. Um, I enjoy studying history. Uh, we go back to, uh, the history of America revolutionary where all that stuff, things change. 
things for even in my profession umpire we've gone to replay uh we, we will probably have a computer calling balls and strikes before too long um technology things change uh but you know it's the the constant that i always go back to that no matter what happens is um it's god's word doesn't change wow and and when i dive in and, and i study scripture and i read scripture it's one of those things that the more i study uh, the more i find out that i really have only scratched the surface you know i used to think well i'll get my phd and then i'll be like an expert in this and it's like i haven't even um dip my toe in the water yet is how deep this pool is. It's like an ocean. And um, there's just so much in there that is, is applicable to our lives today. And yet it's unchanging. It's, un it's the same as it was yesterday and it'll be the same tomorrow. And that's the constant. And um, that's the thing that, that I just keep going back to. And because I'm troubled, you could hear, you could hear uh, in some of my answers that, I'm troubled with what's going on in the world today. But I also know that, that God saw this coming. Um, he knows what he's doing. And his word, uh, it doesn't change. It, and, and so that's comfort to me, that I can go to that and, and get answers and, and, and get uh, seek wisdom and get comfort. And it doesn't change. And it'll be like that. Uh, for my grandkids and for their kids, the, the, the same thing will be there as it was yesterday. It'll be tomorrow. So that's the constant uh, that we can rely on. And everything else, it'll move around. It is a comfort for me, too. And um, I love that you said that. And I want to say this. I started out our private conversation before I pressed record by saying that you are a comfort to me. Um, there is a confidence in you and a warmth. I shared with you earlier that there's a warmth that comes from you. And I'm sure those that are listening can feel that. And that is just a, um, uh, something that's been gifted to you. And I'm sure that you, you, you understand that warmth about you and it's possibly part of your personality, but I believe it's also the faith that rests in you. Um, but I feel that you are comforting to me and I, I seek comfort a lot. I seek it in places that I don't need to be seeking it. Um, mm -hmm. I eat foods a lot more than I should to seek comfort. Um, but today has just been a really informative time. You're super smart. I love everything you shared, but it's been a very warm time and, and a comforting time. So I think that we've landed on a note that would be a great place to say goodbye for now. But um, I thank you so much for this interview and I can't wait till we come together again. Um, and then I can't wait till we can socialize and, and hang out with your adorable wife. Um, and I'll be thinking of you and your family and your grandkids and the new one that's on the way and be praying that it's healthy. It's a healthy process and the child is healthy and the mom is healthy. Um, so Ted, you've just done me well today um, and this new venture that I'm on. And I'm going to stop the recording, but hang on for a sec. If you don't mind, I'd like to just have time to talk to you uh, off the recording so we can say goodbye properly. But um, 
my friends that are listening, you have listened to just a really amazing guy. And I know that you have already picked up on that in the listening to him uh, share today. So we'll look forward to when he can come back. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Terry. So this was recorded um, clearly before they made the official determination that baseball was coming back and when spring training or spring slash summer training was starting. And that is actually tomorrow. The players head out tomorrow, July 1st. And we uh, are all, I think, anxious to see how this is going to go and wishing everyone well and praying for everyone's safety. But I do believe that our country is going to get a lift. You know, baseball does that no matter if you are um, a fan of the hot dogs or the game or both. But um, truthfully, I could have talked and talked to Ted and I asked him if he would come back. He said yes. So we are going to hopefully have some communication even while he's out on the road. So maybe you'll want to shoot out a question or something through my website. Speaking of my website, um, terrysummers.com forward slash podcast, my name being spelled T-E-R-E-Y. S-U-M-M-E-R-S dot com forward slash podcast. You can go there and leave me some questions. If there's anything you've ever wanted to ask me, uh, go ahead and leave it. And I will try to answer that in an upcoming episode. Um, You can also leave questions in the future for Ted, uh, given that I anticipate he will be back. But I thank you so much for listening. I do want to remind you not to forget to hit that subscribe button Hmm? (laughs) so you don't miss a single episode of the Terry Summers podcast and share this with your friends, if you will, and leave me some five-star reviews if you're so moved to help me stand out from the pack. This has just been a joy. Again, I think I like it.